It is such a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's my first time at Covenant College. Uh, I've been wanting to come for many, many years. Lots of friends who have come through here uh, said so many wonderful things about the place. And uh, so I was a little bit giddy. Um, and finally having the opportunity to come, and it's met all of my expectations in terms of the warmth and the, the friendliness. And I, I feel very much at home, which is important because, as I said, I have three children, and I, I would love for them uh, to consider Covenant College as uh, uh, an option. So let's, uh, let's see there. Yeah, I just met with admissions. I'm, I'm waiting for the free stuff. We'll see. We'll see what I get. Um, uh, so with that in mind, as I share about um, Covenant College and I share about what I'm passionate about, what the Lord has called me to in terms of the work that I do with diversity um, and justice, and I see this at a, at a Christian university and as a Christian, of course, that this is not a, a lefty liberal agenda to talk about diversity. It is, it is actually biblical, right? Man did not invent diversity. God did, right? When he did Adam and Eve, man and woman, right? And it started from the very beginning, if you think about diversity um, uh, on gender, but certainly with uh, ethnicity. But uh, I had a great talk last night with a good interaction with people. I enjoyed the time, but I'm going to repeat some of the things that I've said earlier, I think it might be helpful for context um, as we, as we uh, begin. But let me begin with a story that I shared last night. Uh, it's not my story, but I love telling it. It's um, by R. Robert Thomas, and it's called uh, The Elephant in the Giraffe. The book is called Building a House for Diversity. And uh, as all stories go, you know, it's uh, once upon a time, there was a, a giraffe. Had this beautiful house that the giraffe lived in, that the envy of all the other giraffes and uh, built this house with tall, uh, narrow hallways and windows that can look out and uh, won awards in Giraffe House of the Year, et cetera. Um, it was the envy of all giraffes. And out the window, as the giraffe is working, he sees his friend, the elephant. He says, I know this elephant. Our kids are in schools together, and we do things. And this elephant, also in the same field as me, I'd love to invite this elephant over. Very hospitable giraffe. Invites the elephant over. The elephant encounters a problem immediately. What is it? Can't get in through the door. So the uh, giraffe says, ah, I can accommodate. I can grant access. I'll open the doors for you. I've, I've, he's an architect, so he's figured out hinges on the doors, opening up the elephant, gets in, they have a conversation. It's great. The um, giraffe is distracted, has to go take care of something upstairs, goes away, tells the elephant, make yourself at home. The elephant tries to make himself at home tries to walk around, up the stairs, whatever it is, too narrow. Can't see anything because the windows are really high, et cetera. You can imagine the elephant trying to make his way, bumps into stuff, breaking windows, uh, knocking down uh, stairs and all this stuff. Giraffe comes back downstairs, and the giraffe says, what's going on? What are you doing in my house? And the giraffe says, uh, the, the elephant says, you told me to make myself at home. I'm trying to make myself at home. And the giraffe says, oh, I see the problem. It's you. You're too fat. You need to lose weight. You need to take ballet lessons. You need to get light on your feet. Uh, you need to change in order for you to be comfortable here. And the elephant is not convinced because the elephant's thinking what? I don't know if a house that is built for giraffes is intended for elephants. I don't think a house that was built for giraffes is intended for elephants. Now, you feel bad for the giraffe to some extent, right? Because the giraffe is the one who was hospitable, who granted access, opened the doors for the elephant to come in. 
really genuine in, in, in his heart of hearts, loves the elephant, right? But fundamentally, the assumption is that the elephant needs to change. We can talk about elephants and giraffes all day long. It's safer, but uh, you know, I've come to realize that these are good sort of techniques for us to have these conversations. Who, who's the elephant? Who, who are you calling a giraffe? I'm offended. Uh, so this is nice and safe, you know, but you probably know where I'm going with this. The problem is a giraffe says, I don't know why that elephant is so upset. I don't know why the elephant, if I did everything I could, I let him in, what more can I do? I'm being hospitable, right? I even granted access, found a way to have this elephant to come in, and this is how I get repaid. So the giraffe goes and talks to who? His friends. Who are his friends? Other giraffes who think the same way. It's the architecture of the mind. You see, it's not just, it's not just the building or the structures that we're talking about. It's the mind that's behind it. So giraffes, whatever state the giraffe came from, probably could figure out, oh, you look a little bit different from me, but implicitly, I know how to get around because you're a giraffe. Elephants, not so much. But the standards by which we use and measure access into the house are giraffe's standards. Right? So one of the standards might be, can you look over the horizon? Can you see over this? And the elephant says, no, I can't. Not without some accommodations. I need step stools and it needs to be strong and because you built it really high. Like, no, we built it normal, right? This whole idea of normativity, what we consider normal, right? It's by our standards. And so when we encounter difference, our first thought is, we'd love for you to come in. Genuinely, in my heart of hearts, I'd love for you to come in. But you need to change, because we're not changing. We're not going to change. We've changed already. We made accommodations. We get that you look different and act different. So we're going to try to make it work for you, make some accommodations. Friends, I'm, I wanted to share with you that when we think about diversity, that first of all, we don't think of diversity as some sort of liberal agenda that what all the other institutions across the country, that's not who we are, right? So we're not going to do, you give me examples, Alex, of schools like Harvard and Stanford, and they're fine institutions, but they're secular institutions. So we're not going to play by that standard. Okay, I get that. So let's play by our own standards. So let's play by God's standards, what God wants us to do, right? Because that's why we exist. I had a good talk with the admissions office, and I think they fundamentally understand the type of students that they've been recruiting over the last several years, right? There are students who go to Christian schools, sorry, not just Christian schools, probably uh, reform schools. Right? or homeschooled or what have you. So they, they have this tradition, great tradition of reformed education. That's who we're looking for. And guess what? That's not based on worldly standards already. Right? So every, I see heads nodding. I think we agree that we're not going to play by the rules of other secular institutions on some things. And yet we still use SATs. We still use GPAs. We still use sort of standard measurements that all the other secular institutions will use. Maybe we don't get hung up with US News and World Report as much, right? So there's that. But there's something about the way that we've approached uh, our policies and what we measure as a good fit for the institution. I would submit, friends, that fundamentally, we're still thinking as giraffes. And when we think of other students, when we think about diversifying our faculty, Thinking about diversifying our staff or diversifying our student body. 
in many ways, what comes implicit to us does not come implicit to others. So when you bring somebody in, and all the good feelings that come with your willingness to want to be hospitable, to bring people in, you can't help but be who you are. Now, I'm not saying that you have to beat yourself up to be a giraffe, right? You shouldn't walk around with giraffe guilt. That's not the goal. Oh, I got guilt now. I can't believe I'm a giraffe. And I'm going to find every elephant and apologize. Yeah, that's, that's what it, this guy came in and told me. No, it's not that. Of course not. Of course not. But is there a way that we can rethink not only the system that's in place, the structures, the buildings, the culture of giraffe that's in place that needs to be modified, but also our own architecture of our minds, the assumptions that we make fundamentally to say, we can't wait for you to come here. We want you here but you've got to change, or you've got to meet what my standards are. And they are somewhat arbitrary, I think. Right? So if we have this conversation about the types of people, and this is true across the country, I, I've spoken at uh, Christian colleges and uh, secular institutions alike, same issue, actually, believe it or not. Uh, that's a little problematic for me. If I think at predominantly white institutions that are secular, that have fundamentally different missions and values, as our, our Christian brothers and sisters, but are also predominantly white institutions, it's amazing how much similarity there is with the secular and the Christian along the lines of race. Actually, they have a lot more in common when we talk about social issues than you do with people who, who don't look like us, right? who don't look in a dominant majority group. right? But fundamentally, we're, we're going to spend eternity together. So I'm trying to reconcile that, that we are, you are my family. Right? Closer than you would be with, I'm Korean-American, closer than I would be with other Korean-Americans who don't share the same faith, who don't believe in the same Lord. Right? But so there's something fundamental about what is most important to me in the way that I approach things right? that speak into, uh, that get played out in ways like in policies and culture. Right? Like, that, oh, it's just not a good fit. So this is an ongoing problem in churches, right? Is we want to diversify, we want to see different... Uh, types of people in our churches, and yet, for some reason, they don't fit in. And what do we do? We turn around, and we typically blame, we blame the victims. We say, well, what is it about you that, that didn't make you successful here, either as a faculty member, as a staff, or as a student? Right? And we problematize it the wrong way. And uh, higher education researchers like myself, what we like to do is to flip the script. And we say, let's stop asking about the students and how the students need to change and what is wrong with the students that are coming to us that aren't fill in the blank, that they're not academic enough, they're not rigorous enough, they're not committed enough, whatever it is, right? Uh, rather than that, why don't we flip the script and say, what is it about the institution that makes it difficult for certain groups to be successful? Because uh, the way I looked at sort of the perpetuation of uh, issues that go on in the United States with uh, issues of race is, the secret to for have this to be uh, perpetual is to do nothing. As long as we continue to do nothing, the system will stay the same. Right? This homeostasis, equilibrium. Um, and so we have to think in, in much more radical terms. And I think we have to think much more comprehensively and collaboratively in order to work. Maybe some of us will look at the admission staff and put the burden squarely upon their shoulders to say, get us a diverse class, would you? We're going to pray for you. 
uh, get us a diverse group. It's all on you. And if they fail to do it, we're going to say, what's wrong with the admissions office? The admissions office naturally will say, we can bring them here, but they won't stay. We'll bring them on campus. What is it about the institutional culture that makes it difficult for some students to come? Now, it gets sensitive uh, with my faculty colleagues in the room. If I were to talk to you to say, what is it about the way that we teach that is the same way that we were uh, trained in our, in our disciplines, right, that we've perpetuated in the field and expect uh, some sort of different result? Because ultimately what we're saying in the classroom, and this is true for me, um, that in the classrooms, I'm going to teach the way I teach. And students have to adapt to my style. Rarely do I say, what are the different learning styles that are out there? And how can I adapt my teaching to their different learning style? Um, if I'm honest, my first response as a faculty member is, boy, that sounds like a lot of work. It's a lot easier if I just lecture. <laughs> and you know, your job is to listen. And if you don't have a good sort of a, a, a listening skills, and that's not the way you learn best, right? Because you're a competitive learner, or you're a tactile learner, or whatever it is, but you're not a good auditory learner, well, you're going to have a problem, because this is the way I do it. Right? Let's flip the script. Fundamentally, let's think differently. Because that's an elephant interaction area. Right? We're asking you to be a better listener, because I'm not changing the way I'm going to do it. So my challenge to you, my colleagues, would be, how do we think different about teaching and learning, fundamentally, in the way that we approach it? I could go into curriculum as well. We can talk curriculum. right? We're going to teach the great books. We're going to talk about these are the core uh, requirements for what I would consider a Covenant College student, a, a graduate, a future alumni, to know. These are the core courses. Right? Uh, they all happen to be the same uh, gender, the same ethnicity. Right? Um, and maybe we don't know any other uh, literature. We don't know of any other scholars of color. We don't know of any scholars that are female that we're going to include into our, our uh, list of canon, what we consider to be. Uh, great books or what we would consider to be important for learning. Maybe there's one or two people who will share, oh, what about this person? What about this person? Have you considered these people? And our natural response is, yeah, I just don't have time. There's not enough room in my, I can't assign more than 10 books, right? So here are 10 books that I'm going to use, and these are the core courses. And these other ones are important, but really what we're saying is they're not as valued for me. Because for me, these are the important ones. And so in the curriculum, if we were to examine, maybe even problematize some of our curriculum, we look at the courses that we teach, what we're being taught, and how we're teaching it, right? all I'm asking, I'm not asking you to make these changes, all I'm asking is that we consider right, what is it about the architecture, the system that's in place, uh, that makes it difficult for some students. Because elephants may never read anything written by an elephant. As an Asian American man going through all the programs that I went through in elementary school, high school, college, um, even well into my master's, until my doctoral program, I rarely read anything by another Asian American male or Asian Americans in general. Um, except, except if you took an elective class on Asian American studies, right? Because that's where they belong, right? African American studies, we have African American teachers but they teach the African-American classes. Asian-American faculty, they teach the Asian-American classes. And they're elective, right? Why is it that 
this gets dangerous, but why is it that you have white male uh, books are always the core? And African-American literature is always an elective. Fundamentally, we have to change the way that we think about what we consider critical thinking, what we consider um, important knowledge for students to be able to gather and graduate with. Um, how important is it to have a diversity in any sort of a community? I would think it's important. I, I love the example of the, some of you know this, the Chevy Nova. You remember the Nova, right? Just knocked it right out of, no, something didn't go well. The, the sales didn't go very well with Nova. So the uh, urban legend with this is, um, if you speak Spanish, Nova means no go. Well, nobody in the boardroom or the R&D department who is developing this car, they thought of the, our, the, what is the North Star, the Nova, right? And sort of in English. But no one thought, what does this mean in other cultures? And the cars didn't sell very well because no one's going to buy a car that says no go. Um, aside from that, it's interesting because maybe there was nobody in the boardroom, nobody in the R&D department, nobody who were to say, uh, I think this means something else. I think, was it Chrysler? Chevy, they would have seen this as very valuable to have different perspectives in the room, right? Something as uh, simple as bottom line, like making more money, right, for, for car companies. Uh, we do work that's so much more important. It's not about money, right? It's about educating uh, and raising up future leaders for God's kingdom. We want them to be well-balanced and very intelligent and very thoughtful and critical in their thinking. The way that's going to happen is we're going to have people who are constantly crashing into them with different opinions and different ideas. Right? Uh, that's going to be about How important is that to you? What are you willing to do to have those, those types of conversations in class? Scholars across the country have talked about this. Diversity in the classroom, that's important. It's not just simple, simple uh, compositional diversity. right? It's not Noah's Ark, as I said earlier. It's not just bringing in two by two and just having a little bit of everybody. right? It has to be intentional. What is it about the experiences in a classroom, either with a faculty member who's got a different perspective, um, or the students in the class who have different perspectives, life experiences, whatnot, uh, that they're engaging in conversation with other students? They're going to be world leaders. They're already going to be prepared um, to address some of the concerns that are going on beyond the walls of Covenant College. How important is that to us? What are we willing to do? How much are we willing to pay for that? So one example for me would be, well, let's value those students, the students who are students of color, who I think there aren't a lot of at Covenant College, um, or faculty. Like, if we really value that experience, treat them like my alma mater does, USC. Um, sorry, I'm, on the, I'm east of the Mississippi, so it's University of Southern California. Trojan's not the game cause how the USC Trojans treat their student athletes. Because he can throw a football or can dunk a basketball, we're going to pay top dollar and do everything we can to get that student on our campus because that's valuable to us. Or another institution that says, we have a student who has the top SAT scores and the top uh, uh, grades. We want that student at our school. We'll pay top dollar to have that student on our campus because that's our future leader. That's the next faculty member, the next whatever, right? So they'll pay money to get that student. They'll make the investment for the future. Do we not value diverse learning and diverse experiences the same way? Would we not pay top, do uh, top dollar 
to have those students come to our institutions? Right? So a crazy idea would be, what about students of color that we invite and we give scholarships to, full scholarships? Because our school is desperate to have these types of students in our classrooms. Maybe the first response will be, well, are they qualified? Right? Now, it's a great question, right? Uh, we could spend all day, I won't. I gotta be careful of time because I know we wanna take questions. Um, fundamentally, I think in that question is, we're placing academic excellence, diversity. Diversity is not seen as excellent. That means we don't really value it as much as we say we do. Because if we really valued it, and this is sort of the way the denomination wants to uh, move towards, is to say we want to see leaders, we want to see people in God's kingdom who, who look different than they have in the past. Right? We want to learn under them, we want them to take leadership. If that's true, where does that begin? It's not in seminary. It actually starts in the colleges. Right? So if we really value that, we will put money behind this. For the sake of argument, let's say the students aren't as academically qualified as the traditional students that we're thinking. If that's true, what are we willing to do? So valuable are those students that we would change, we would put more resources behind the students once they're here on campus. Right? Maybe in tutorials, maybe in summer bridge programs as we were talking earlier with uh, the admissions staff, um, in intensive writing. Maybe remediation is part of it. Right? Or maybe it's the way that we teach classes are gonna change. As a community, are we talking about this or is it just the burden of the admissions office? Are we talking about it at the highest levels? The president's cabinet, the board, are these conversations that are being had that so important to us for God's kingdom that this is the direction we wanna move and we wanna put money behind it. We had a good discussion earlier because it's not just about the money. The money would be the byproducts of a vision. And money always follows vision. But if we simply talked about the byproducts, we would, we'd be arguing. So we have to have a discussion about vision and values. I think it's gonna be a, a very important part of the discussion as a community. Uh, the example I, I, I gave uh, last night was about uh, myself. I talk about uh, weight loss, right? I'd love to lose 10 pounds, maybe 20, 30, whatever. Uh, so if I could lose it, right, my goal is, if my goal is to lose weight, then I'm gonna eat kale and like steel cut oatmeal or whatever that is, you know, no more the sweet stuff. I could do it, I'm gonna be miserable, I'm gonna be begrudgingly do this, right? Uh, and I could probably meet my goal, I have, and then I'll gain it all back, because it's not a long lasting. What's missing is a consciousness, right? If I'm thinking healthy living is my goal, then weight loss will be a byproduct. So if we're thinking God's kingdom, if we're thinking in terms of diverse, uh, God's diverse kingdom, and we wanna create leaders in the future, money, uh, resources, those will be byproducts. And the way we teach the classes will change. But if we focus just on, okay, we want more diverse students, so we'll put money behind this, right? But begrudgingly, it's kind of like uh, eating kale, right? Then it's not gonna last. So that's a conversation I think we need to have as a community to think about how we can uh, share in a vision of where we're gonna be in 20 years. It might include uh, inviting alumni, prominent alumni back on campus, not just the donors, Right? I mean, again, that's important, but that's what all the secular institutions do. But we're not a secular institution, are we? We're different. How are we different? We're gonna value every single person. How often do we invite alumni of color back and have them speak into this process? Because I've heard, and it's probably true at all institutions, that your alumni are probably your best recruiters. If they do nothing else but breed 
and have children. <laughs> they're going to be your best recruiters. And they're going to know other breeders you know, who have fruits of their labor, who will want to send their kids to your school. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Some, some cultures more than others, I, I've come to realize. Uh, lots, of, lots of children. That's good. But the assumption is that they had a good experience here when they were students, right? I think that might be true if you were a giraffe. You ask them, oh, I had a great experience here. Ask the elephants. Would they want their children to come here? Because the fundamental difference will be, I think giraffes are going to say, I want the same experience for my children that I had when I was here. The elephants are going to say, I want my children to have such a different experience than I had here. That's, that's important. Now, what is it? Has the institution changed? Or do we pride ourselves on tradition and history in all of the wrong ways to say we're not going to change? I could talk forever, um, but I want to make sure that we have time for questions. Um, so please, feel free to ask anything. Uh, lots of other things I'd love to talk about. But any reflections or uh, heartache on what I've shared? Yes, sir. So um, you talked about ethnic diversity here. Um, I'm in computer science. Well, we have some issues there. We have bigger issues with gender diversity. Yes. Uh, is it OK for us to also talk about gender diversity, or do we not do that and it's just the ethnic diversity? This is a great question. Um, I think it's both. Yes, absolutely, uh, gender is uh, important. We have to talk about gender diversity, especially in the sciences, the STEM fields. Uh, well, we're it's a big issue. Yeah. Oh, computer sciences. Computer science. Eight, okay. eight, eight, across the U.S., eighteen percent of uh, majors are female. Yeah. So it's half the rate of science. Yeah. Oh goodness. Yeah. Here yeah. at Covenant, of course, it's nineteen percent. It's lower. Lower than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I bring this up with my administration and make suggestions, um, it goes pretty well until we do anything that costs money. That's right. It's, then it's no longer a very interesting topic. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I, my reflection. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, how much do we value? Right. What's it going to cost? Because it's going to cost. I go back to the weight loss example. Yeah. You know, the physician says you need to. The, you want to. You want to be healthy. You got to lose weight. Right. You got to exercise, and eat right, mm -hmm. and yeah. join a gym. And if my first question is, how much is that going to cost? Like get a personal trainer. Oh my gosh, it's going to cost me money? Right? Well, I want to do it, but I want to do it at the lowest uh, possible cost. Why? Because I don't really value losing weight. I don't value healthy living. But my friends who are very much valued healthy living, you see where they spend their money. Right? And so you've heard this story about people who don't have a budget. Look at their expenditures, and you'll see what, what their budget is. Right? Where you spend your money is where your heart is. It's true for pastors have been preaching that for years. Where you spend your time and money is where your heart is. Right? Um, so I think there is something to that, to absolutely to affirm the importance of uh, gender diversity. Right? I think the danger is, on, my, uh, on the more cynical days, uh, colleagues will say to me, it's like, oh, then what's next? Right? I don't think we fully understand the diversity issue. Because if we're asking, OK, now we're going to talk about what left-handed people, we're going to talk about geographic diversity, what? Sometimes that matters. Right? But in your case, I think that would absolutely be true with computer science. Right? That yeah. not having yeah. enough female engineers. That might be yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
and then uh, not to give up and to continue to fight for this to say we need, we need money behind it. The example I gave last night was about um, um, uh, oncologists, radiologic uh, oncologists who they needed more women. And this is a study from UCLA. They're saying they needed more women faculty or women um, um, physicians, female physicians, because when they talked about uh, patients who had mastectomy, um, they'd ask the physicians, the patients would ask the physicians, how is it gonna feel when I get a prosthetic? And the physicians would answer, by and large, how it would feel to the touch from the outsider how your husband will feel about it. When they asked the women, the female faculty, or the female uh, uh, physicians would all answer how you will feel, how the patient will feel about it. It's fundamentally different. Um, all the training is the same. Medical school, fellowship, extended fellowships, and all that, all being the same, men fundamentally don't understand things. And it hurts the patient, ultimately. So there's an example of diversity, gender diversity, that is absolutely crucial uh, beyond bedside manner. Right? So um, it, we need it, and that's true at all levels. Now, I would love uh, this institution to have this vision to say, we want to see the next generation of leaders in our denomination um, who have this worldview. And it's not just people of color. right? It's not just our, our alumni of color. It's everybody. Um, it's, the, it's the white students from the South who actually have a great sense of equity and diversity and justice. But where do they get that, right? It was formed while they were here, interacting with their faculty, interacting with people who were different from them, having these difficult conversations. Otherwise, it's gonna be remedial education. I talk a lot about remedial education at the doctoral level. Most of my students, when I teach um, diversity and social justice in higher education, these are the 30-somethings and the 40-somethings who are pursuing a PhD and have never had a diversity conversation in their undergrad, never had it in their master's program, and are now finally having it their second year of their PhD program. I call that remedial education, right? That they've never had these conversations. They've never, what was it? Where'd you go to college? They say, well, this was my college experience. I said, well, was it diverse? No, it wasn't. So that wasn't an area that we covered. And then I went to whatever it was, seminary or my master's, well, was it diverse? No. So we never talked about it. That's a problem. And these are people serving the kingdom. Yes, sir. Really great and very helpful. Uh, I'm a theologian and totally buy what you're saying. There's two similar things. But here's the self-criticism. When you're from a confessional institution, we're going to speak very similar to you. So we all mean well. We'll say, of course we want diversity. I mean, we think we've gotten somewhere where we finally realize, you know, every tribe, tongue, and language, yeah, this is a good thing. Um, but it, it is that we tend to, if I'm going to sign a particular book, or we're going to get a faculty member from people that look different, have different experiences, we are open to that. But those books actually, basically, and theology, to say the same thing. Hmm. And that's a massive problem because I don't find people who say, yeah, no, well, I'm not for diversity. But real diversity means we have to take criticism. That's right. And yes, that criticism can't just be about how I wear my hair mm -hmm. or dress. It can be about how I might be viewing God inappropriately. Wow. Yes. 
But that is a conversation that's very difficult for us as an institution and even more difficult as a denomination. Yeah. So I don't know if you have any suggestions on how to gently, but otherwise it does feel like we're playing games. We are saying, come to this house, yeah. but just so you know, this is how it works. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you so much for that question. It's, it is a comprehensive, collaborative approach that we need, bottom up, top down. Uh, the study committee is addressing some of these. You know, I'm on the study committee now. Uh, several feel almost everyone's a teaching elder um, on the committee, and they're talking about seminary education. It's probably a little too late, but they are talking about seminary education to say part of the problem is seminary education is they're not getting this perspective, right? If you read the Bible from a hermeneutic of suffering, uh, who do you talk to? Well, the best people to talk to are probably African-American Christians who, who have generations of suffering in the United States. The, the black church knows what it's like to suffer, um, usually at the hands of the white church in the United States, right? Um, Carl Ellis, uh, Dr. Ellis has this great uh, thing that he says about uh, how the gospel came. We had this discussion several times of, I was amazed in my, in my naivete, I said, I'm amazed that African-Americans, uh, uh, black people who were slaves, embraced the gospel of their masters. I'm like, oh, that takes a lot of faith. And uh, Dr. Ellis was saying, actually, the black slaves saw the gospel as it really was presented, not in the way that their slave owners had presented it. They had the false gospel, and it was the slaves who understood the real gospel because it wasn't triumphant. It was about suffering. Um, boy, oh boy, that was mind-blowing for me, that, that perspective. Isn't that interesting to, to share it that way? So if you want to talk about a hermeneutic of suffering, a theology of suffering, the best people to ask might be black theologians right, who are reformed. But that's not happening in the seminaries. And so one of the arguments would be we need to change seminary education so that people are really much more aware of, at least in this context, of what the experience is for African-Americans and how theology will then shape um, the direction we go. This is important, I think, on a, on a broader scale because in the, in, in the United States, talking about a bunch of stuff like transgendered bathrooms and all these other issues that are going on across the country that a lot of Christians are now very fearful of what's gonna happen because we're not, no longer in a dominant position, right? Sociologically, we can say it's not, it's not a Christian nation, hasn't been for a while. Some of us are gonna continue to fight for that with laws and policies to maintain a Christian uh, country, socially or otherwise. But the reality is that it's increasingly uh, fewer and fewer in terms of uh, sort of a Christian mindset in the United States. So we're going to become a minority. Christians as a group are going to become a minority in the United States. Well, we've never experienced what that's like in the United States ever. So how are we going to persevere? Right? Do we talk to the, uh, the Christians in North Korea? Do we talk to the Christians in Iraq, uh, the Christians in the People's Republic of China, where it's still illegal in all these countries? Yeah, that's a good place to start. Or who do we talk to in the United States? You talk to the African-American Christians or the Asian-American Christians who've already experienced this duality of life of being a Christian but also being a minority in society and reconciling that every day when they read about uh, the Old Testament with, the, with uh, God's people, Israelites, traveling and being... Um, persecuted and, and longing for home. I hear a, a lot of people um, in my generation, Korean, Korean pastors, first generation, who grew up under the, the, the regime of Japanese uh, colonization, 
in, in Korea. They love, they read that, it, it speaks to them. They know what that's like. Those are the people we're going to turn to. We're going to ask them, how did you survive all these years being minoritized? Um, we, guess what? They become your leaders. Now, it's a whole other issue if, uh, going back to the giraffes and the elephants example, giraffes will let you in, but I don't know if the elephants should necessarily take over the homeowners association. That's going to change everything. Uh, and naturally it will, because the, the elephants are going to say, we want to respect the giraffes. We're not saying that the houses should all become like elephants, because that just flips the script. We don't want that, because that's not the right answer. But if you put enough people in the homeowners association, you put enough uh, elephants in there, they're going to say, here's how we might think differently that's more inclusive. We need those leaders. We need, we need the elephants uh, to address some of these issues. And are we willing to do it? Now, that's a fundamental question for us in terms of our mindset. Are we able to change our mindset? Um, and I hear this a lot about churches. We can have multicultural churches, but who's in charge? It's still the dominant major minority group that's in charge leading them, uh, which is fascinating to me when I think about the New City folk, right? Uh, some of these churches where they're multicultural and multi-ethnic, but they're, they've really uh, submitted themselves to minority leadership. And that's rare. That's a different, that's a whole different direction. And we need them. They're our leaders. We can learn a lot from what they're doing. And my argument, again, is we need to build and we need to raise up those leaders right now because they don't just sort of appear out of magic. Or if they do, they're going to they're gonna develop their leadership skills in our denomination despite what we don't do for them at the college level and at the seminary level. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I do, yeah. Thank you for the question. It is fundamentally, I would say, unfair to put the burden on minority brothers and sisters. Faculty member, I'm glad you're here. I hope you'll be the change that I need. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to do a darn thing. But boy, I, I'm going to cheer you on. Oh, it was hard this year? I'm so sorry. I'm going to pray for you. What can I do? And that person comes back and says, I need you to change. I need you to talk to your people. I need you to fundamentally get this. So that's what needs to happen. That needs to be a promise for our students, for our faculty, and for our staff of color. We're not just going to bring you in and put the burden on you. Plenty of burden, trust me. Whether you like it or not, when I, whether I like it or not, I walk into a room and people are going to say, when we talk about Asian Americans or Koreans or whatever it is, I'm going to lean in over. And I'm like, oh, is it my turn? Okay, yeah. Let me speak for all 
Korean Americans, all people of color, in fact, and give you our perspective, because we had a meeting yesterday to answer this very question. <laughs> Never mind the fact that you could have done the research yourself and found out what's going on. Would it be so hard for you to tell me what's going on because you, you cared enough, right? That's, I think, fundamentally the issue, that we, we throw you out there, we want you to survive, and we, we're going to cheer you on. The burden is actually on us. And so which comes first? Do we bring the students and the faculty and the staff and put the burden on them to make the change and then say, oh, I'm so sorry that it didn't work out? Or, and or, do we say, we as an institution need to change? Now, uh, I have a dean in my department. He's a white male, Christian, um, who has a dean's diversity group, readings group. Uh, on his own volition, he felt the need to want to learn, and he wants to change the culture of the institution. I don't think you need to have a black dean or an Asian dean, or Korean dean might be nice, but um, <laughs> I don't think you necessarily have to have that. If you have a guy who's got a mindset to say, I want to study God's kingdom in a different way. I want to challenge myself. I want to challenge everybody in my school. And so the dean has put together this group. Now you've got several brown nosers who just want to spend time with the dean. Um, and the, the price they've got to pay is they've got to read these books. Um, and he knows that, so it's good. So he's got, he's got these readings that he's done now four years in a row. My first year, I thought, okay, let me see what this white boy's going to do. Is he going to do it just once? And he's going to come over, hey, Alex, guess what I did this year, right? I read Ta-Nehisi's Coates. Um, that's great, once, right? He's been doing it for four years. Now, at a certain point, even a cynical guy like me, I'm like, all right, that, that's all right. You're consistent with this. He has created a culture in the school. And most of the people who come are other, uh, well, because it's APU, uh, most of the faculty are still white. And they're coming and they want to learn. Now, the burden is there for the handful of African Americans and Asian Americans who come to this book group because they, they lean to the people and they're like, oh, so how should I understand this? Right? But that's shifting. It's shifting now because the people in the group, in the dominant majority group, are reading and they're interpreting, they're talking to each other, and, and they're going beyond just the group. And they're talking to their departments and having these conversations. Very exciting, to be honest. Now, if you're a person of color, faculty member who we're recruiting, I guarantee you the first place I'm going to invite them to is this group, because I want them to come see it. And most recently, when we were recruiting a faculty member who just joined us, African-American female uh, woman who just joined us, I was saying, can you please come to this? I want you to know this is what's going on. Um, and it was absolutely essential for her, because she wanted to answer that fundamental question. Am I going to have to teach everybody? Is every, whether I teach diversity or not, is everything I do going to be a diversity seminar? Or is this conversation happening without me? And I think that culture needs to be in place as you bring students on so it's not the bait and switch. And the institutional commitment. The institutional commitment to say, not only are we going to bring you here, we're going to bring money and all this stuff to bring you here, but we're going to make sure that you, you survive academically, socially, spiritually, and put the resources and the time and the heart behind it. Hi. Um, this is maybe a two-parter, but we are a denominational institution. We are here to, as it were, safeguard the tradition. Hmm. That's what we're here for. We hire reformed people. Um, I'm a theater professor. When I used to hire a professor who's reformed, do you know how easy it is to find that person? Um, so I kind of figure I could create them. Yeah. All right. And I do, and I hire her, and then she gets pregnant. I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> 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 
It'd be good if faculty did that too, <laughs> even if they're reformed. I'm not talking about this institution, I, but. I hear, I hear that. Yeah. So we have a culture here in denomination which, to some degree, is looking at the Harvards and the Princetons and other places yeah. that started churches yeah. and saying, we must not go there. So we're circling the wagon. some degree because we're culture bound we can't tell what the non-negotiables are from the negotiables and so when we start to get any working with the negotiables people's hair starts falling <laughs> because people think that really isn't a negotiable that's, right. that's, there's only one biblical take on this oh. yeah so um, fix that for me <laughs> okay <laughs> Thanks, Camille. Okay. Yeah. That's great. The, the, the one piece I, I want to pick up on that, I think I get it when I go to uh, General Assembly, is everyone's sizing each other. How reform are you? Yeah. Well, right? You get students come on campus, they're like, how reform were you raised? Right? How big is your God? And like, how orthodox are you? Uh, that's a, that's, I'm sure that's a very real problem. And so that is actually, I would argue, a very slippery slope. Because we don't have one standard. Our standard is what we were raised. There's an old Korean saying of, uh, um, what is it, a frog in a well, right? A frog in a well. Your reality, when you're looking up, that's it. That's your funnel. There's a whole bigger world out there, but that's how you were raised, and so that's what you know. Um, so we're a bunch of frogs in wells in our understanding. And then we run into other frogs from other wells, and we're like, what? That's not my definition of reform, or that's not my definition. So that's going to be a challenge both for, uh, certainly for faculty, and I'm not saying we need to water down anything, but that's, again, that's the issue. Whose perspective am I speaking from when I say, oh, now we've watered it down, right? Um, it's the more orthodox person. Yeah, so uh, it's going to be a challenge, and I think that's true for students as well, because we want to bring in students, and we have our traditional, our go-to, right, uh, our typical student, but maybe that needs to change. We need to stop thinking about what we consider a typical student here. Yes, sir. Um, just about the standards, but not uh, orthodox. Uh, I teach a philosophy, and the biggest pushback I get that would be based on cultural differences is from Asian students who don't want to be asked to, to think critically or independently. Hmm. They say, that's not how we do it. And so I say, look, um, in this class, it's a philosophy class, can you pick a position of your own? We don't do that. And so is it my job to change what I expect that I say for, for Asian students who don't need to write independent thought and just want to share what you, uh, what you can rehearse? Or, because I feel like the giraffe who says, I like to come to my class, but you need to think critically and independently here. Right, right. Do it. So how Great do I question. That yeah. I guess my first um, reaction would be, I don't know if we can make blanket statements about all Asian students. So if the Asian students are saying this, right, sometimes, yeah, the Asian students mostly are Korean. mostly Korean. So now we're getting real close to, <laughs> yes, well, good. Um, I'll tell you, in my uh, real short story, because I have no problem sharing my own baggage, uh, my own denomination, my own, uh, what is that, um, uh, Presbytery. 
So, you know, Koreans, I'm in the Korean presbytery, one of the language presbyteries. And we wanted to order something, some structure, and like, hey, we need more, because Korean Americans have been living long enough in the United States. We're like, we'd like some order and structure. We need a plan. You know, <laughs> you hear these from Korean American pastors all the time. Like, I can't work with Koreans. I'm like, brother, you're Korean. <laughs> well, I'm not that, I'm Korean American. So I want structure, plan, I want a budget, you know. And uh, some pastors, not all, but some pastors are saying, Oh, well, you know, Korean, we don't do that. I'm like, don't pull the culture card on me. You're telling me that Samsung, Hyundai, they're Korean. They don't have a plan. They don't have a budget. So it's not Korean culture per se. That's a cop-out. The short answer for me is like, oh, come on. That's not right. Uh, I think pedagogically, I would argue to say, no, let, let's think about that. You do think critically. Asians, uh, Eastern philosophy. There's a lot of critical thinking involved there. It just doesn't look like a Western critical thought. So let's get to that. It takes more work for the faculty, I acknowledge. But let's get to different styles of learning, different ways of critical thinking. Because it's too broad of a brush uh, to simply say, because I'd have a lot of hurdles to go over um, if I thought that Korean Americans don't think critically, right, or don't write critically, I wouldn't be where I am. Or am I divorcing my culture and all my ancestors and my people by saying, I gotta start thinking white. I gotta think white Western. I don't think that's true. There's philosophers in Korea. Philosophy came from Asia. So I don't understand how you could say that there was no critical thinking in the development. Um, so I would challenge that very notion from students who say that. And, and for faculty, it would be, then how do, I, how do I engage with you? Because there is a part of that to say, well, this is the way I learned it, and this is the way I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach it. It's going to be re reproduction. And I, I would argue that we need to challenge that very assumption, both in the, the teaching methodology and our pedagogy, and also in content. So I, it's a lot of work. It's going to, I, it would be more than simply um, you taking this approach ind independently, but maybe it's a department. Maybe it's the entire faculty to think differently about different ways of knowing. You know, it sort of challenges uh, epistemological assumptions, doesn't it? about knowledge. And we make assumptions about how we, we were raised, we were trained, and how we think. So there's a lot there. Great question. Uh, I'd love to talk more. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Okay. So the big concept of that diversity based on ethnicity and or, you know. Great. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Because um, I do this every day. Uh, we have these conversations. But I hope that you don't have to be a diversity scholar or an equity scholar to have these conversations amongst yourselves. And I think it's important to do that, uh, to have discussions of, uh, of terminology. Um, and it should be an ongoing, regular thing. And if we don't know, then we ask. And so I appreciate you asking that question. Um, I don't know how in-depth I can go right now uh, about all the different terminologies. You know, do we use white, Anglo, Caucasian? Everyone has an issue with different words. There are certain words that have been taken back right, in the community right, um, that they were negative. 
that we've used now as a positive. Uh, colored, right, was sort of a negative term and then now it's been taken back, but who's taken it back? Right? Um, it's black and African-American people who've taken the word back. Uh, that's a good thing, right? And language is living and alive or active or whatever the term is. Um, so you see these things happening. Um, I would argue at its most superficial level, when we use terms, the danger is this is like tone policing or, or PC language, right? And I want to avoid, I read this last night about, you know, the, out of the, uh, the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So it's not the mouth that we're worried about. It's not the words we use. It's the heart that we need to get to ultimately. And if we focus just on the superficial to say, well, what's the right term? Like, can I call you Oriental or should I call you Asian or Korean? What do you want? And I say, well, Oriental has been a rug. So <laughs> that's not the right term. Um, we don't call you Occidentals. So let's not refer to people with geographic location. Like, let's, let's not use the compass. Topographical language, right? Um, but is Asian the right word or is it Korean or Korean American? Well, ask the person what they prefer and why. That would be important, right? Um, but deeper than that would be the heart uh, behind it. To say, well, I just want to be PC. I just want to, I don't want to sound racist, right? We don't want you to be racist. We don't want you to not sound racist, right? So that's ultimately, I think, where we end up. But I, the great question. I'd love to talk more. I'm wondering more. if you could give us like a one-minute commercial on your lecture for this evening. Oh, yeah. Okay. So if you had heartache at all and things that I've talked about when I give talks around the country, people have said, now hold on, Alex. Now hold on. Let, I have some challenges to some of the things that you're saying. Right? You're making me feel guilty. Is that the right answer? Is that your goal? Uh, you, um, I, I can't win. What am I supposed to do? I tried this. It didn't work. What can I do? Uh, I'm going to talk about all of these concerns and try to unpack the different um, issues that have arisen, I'll give you a hint. I'm going to talk about the book that's coming out that I've written. Um, uh, it's called Whiteout. One, uh, I'll give you a quick teaser, the idea of white 22. It's sort of off of uh, um, catch 22. You're white if you do and you're white if you don't, right? <laughs> so I did nothing at all. You know, oh, you're white because you don't do anything. Like, okay, well, let me get involved. I'm going to go to a rally. I'm going to protest with you. And then people are like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. What are you talking about? Like, oh, I can't win. So I'm not going to do anything. Right? That's the, the, the white person's dilemma, the white 22. Right? Unpacking that. And like, wh wh what is the right answer? So I'll be talking about that tonight. Thank you. Thank you.